Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus reveals himself more and more to his disciples. As the Father opened their eyes in Caesarea Philippi, they came to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he called his three closest followers to the top of Mount Hermon to give Peter, James, and John a glimpse of the magnificence, the holiness, and the splendor that had been veiled by his human flesh. Finally, when descending down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he announced his deity once more by exercising a demon that no one of the material world could have defeated. Their tour of northern Judea has given us one divine disclosure after another. But now it's time for the group to head south, where practical, real-life issues still remain. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17, and follow along as we read God's Word together, beginning in verse 24. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay? The true drachma tax? He said, yes. And we came into the house. Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. May God bless the reading of his word. Now this discussion about the didrachma or two drachma tax, is only found in one of the four New Testament Gospels. When Mark, Luke, and John recorded their theological biographies of Christ, they made no reference at all to this conversation. But to the former tax collector Matthew, this incident was of particular interest. What did Jesus think about the temple tribute? How important were the taxes that the Jews put in place? From the perspective of a man who spent his entire career collecting, these were significant issues for readers in the middle part of the first century and for us still today. At first, we're made to realize that the tribute is for the son, 
not to be paid by him. Well, take a look back at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. He said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter said, yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. As this conversation unfolds, we hear nothing at all about the other 11 disciples in the apostolic company. From what we just read, it would appear that those collecting on this occasion approached Peter and Peter alone. And that's certainly possible. After all, Peter was a long-standing resident of Capernaum. They were probably staying in his home. And Peter had a reputation at this point for being the group's vocal representative. By far their loudest voice. In fact, there's a good chance these collectors would have known Simon, having interacted with him before. And so they come and ask if his teacher, Jesus, pays the two drachma tax. Now, because you and I are so far removed from this time and this culture, we make no distinction between one type of collection and another. A tax is a tax, we would say. But that's not true in their case, as it is ours. Now, if we're going to understand the point of this particular text, we must first understand the point of this particular tribute. At the time of Christ, you see, the Jewish people were under obligation to two vastly different authorities. There was the governing authority, Rome, to whom the people owed various civil taxes. And then there was their ecclesiastical authority, who imposed tributes and tariffs to support the worship of the Hebrews. Entirely separate and distinct entities collecting entirely separate and distinct taxes. Now, where civil tax is concerned, Scripture is clear about the responsibility of God's people. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, every person is to be in subjection to those governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now there are any number of applications for Paul's teaching on submission to these secular authorities. But he seems most concerned about this one. The payment of civil taxes. For even though the Roman government was an extremely oppressive state, still, he says to those living under that tyranny, you can't honor God unless you pay the government what they're due. He's so adamant about this subject, he speaks to the issue three times in these verses. In verse 6, he says, pay taxes. In verse 7, he said, render tax to whom tax is due. And then again, when he speaks of customs, which were another form of toll or goods tax paid directly to Roman vassals. There should be no doubt what Paul means here. Nor should there be any doubt what Jesus said on that same issue when the Herodians asked him about the Jews need to pay their civil tax. He said, Show me the coin used for their poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Well, Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, leaving them They went away. The Christ is stating unequivocally that paying taxes to human government is a God-ordained obligation. The fact that Rome was totalitarian, pagan, and unjust. The fact that the Caesar depicted on that coin was Augustus, who went around calling himself the Son of God. None of that dismissed their obligation to pay civil taxes. But that's not what these collectors in Capernaum were asking Peter. They didn't come knocking on his door to inquire whether or not Jesus was current in his payments to the Roman government. They came representing the leaders of Judaism to ask about an entirely different matter altogether. The ecclesiastical payment of the temple tribute. That's what they're referring to when they talk about the didrachma or two drachma tax. It was not a civil tax in support of Rome, but a Jewish tax levied against every Hebrew male over the age of 20 in support of the temple and its services. It was actually a carryover of sorts going back to the early days of the tabernacle. That's when this stipulation was first made back in Exodus chapter 30. There, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel, which equates to two drachmas. As a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more. And the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, many years later, when the temple replaced the tabernacle, the same assessment continued to be collected not only at the time of the census then, but on an ongoing annual basis. That's the tax being discussed in Capernaum. Not does Jesus pay his taxes to Rome. Certainly he did. Now the question was, does Jesus pay this tribute for the temple. Well, of course, Peter surmises. He's more zealous about worship than anyone I've ever known. He recognizes the value of the priesthood. He's shown great concern for the temple and how it should run. I can't imagine Jesus not Paying to support its function. I can't imagine Jesus not paying to honor the living God. I can't imagine Jesus not paying. Uh, well, how does Exodus 30 put it? To make atonement for himself. Peter can't imagine such a scenario. Which is why he answers these collectors so hastily. Peter can't imagine it, and neither can we. But there is one incredible detail that we are forgetting. As has been proven over and over and over again, even in these last few incidents, Jesus is God. Specifically in terms of his person, the Son of God, which makes the temple his Father's house. Jesus is not required to pay for its upkeep. I mean, that's what he explains as Peter returns home here. Before the man could even ask the question, Jesus spoke to, speaks to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? Do they collect it from sons or from strangers? 
Now, Jesus uses this comparison to help us understand how taxes in general work. When an earthly king collects taxes and tariffs to support his family, to build his palace, to expand his kingdom, who is required to pay those taxes? His sons? His daughters? Other members of the royal household? No. Only those other ordinary citizens are required to pay. Those strangers, as Jesus refers to them, who are not part of the king's family. They pay the tax, as we're told in verse 26, while the sons are exempt from it. Again, the issue is not, should believers pay taxes? That's not what's in view here. The issue is, is Jesus required to pay the temple tribute to his own heavenly father? And the answer to that question is no. For as Jesus makes clear to Peter, kings do not tax their own sons. I, therefore, being the son of God, for whom this collection is taken, cannot be lawfully required to pay it. This is a tax for upholding my father's house, Jesus would say. As his son, I am uniquely free from this obligation. This tribute is gathered to honor my father. As his son, I honor him without tax or toll. Do you see? The tribute is for the son. Not to be paid by him. And yet, even still, the tribute is offered by the son so as not to offend others. Let's take a look at the text again. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachmas? He said, yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, from strangers? Jesus said to him, then the sons, like me, are exempt. However, he says, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, as was established earlier, Jesus was not required to pay this tax because of his unique sonship talked about that at great length and it remains the case all throughout this narrative but the requirement to pay is not the only matter under consideration 
See, up to this point in Jesus' life, he had submitted to every law that God imposed on the nation of Israel. Every law. Whether those laws made sense for him or not. According to Jewish custom, he went to the temple to make sacrifice. Knowing that he was the atoning sacrifice for sin. He went through all of the purification rituals, all the while being perfect and holy in every way. He even observed the Passover, partaking of a lamb while being the lamb. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he had submitted to every law that God had imposed on the nation of Israel. And though it may have not been an ecclesiastical necessity here, it was important for the sake of others that he submits to this law too. See, Jesus understood that there are other things at play beyond his own personal tax exemption. No, he doesn't have to pay it. But what if he were to refuse? What message would that send to the people around him? Huh, I guess Jesus doesn't support things like worship. Jesus doesn't believe in giving to God. Jesus has no regard for sacrifice, obedience, or keeping the Jewish law. Of course, it would have been erroneous for people to come to those conclusions, but those are the conclusions to which the people would have come. And claiming a tax exemption just simply wasn't worth it. He could have refused the tribute and not been wrong. But for a half a shekel, you humble yourself and you pay. Because something like that has no real bearing on your faith, but it might very well become a stumbling block to another. Paul talked about that same principle in Romans chapter 14 when speaking about the consumption of meat. We must pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, he says. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of a thing like food. All things indeed are clean, he said, but they are evil for the man who eats and give us offense while doing so. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. In these kinds of non-essential areas, we must be extremely careful not to allow our liberty to trip up a fellow saint. Paul is convinced and states with 
apostolic authority that all food is clean and therefore permissible to be eaten by the believer. Yet in the exact same breath, he says, there are times that you should not eat it. And what times are those, you ask? Well, whenever you're eating causes angst, issue or offense to one of your brothers in Christ Jesus. Say, no way. I'm allowed to eat meat. I'm allowed to drink wine. Not if it causes a problem for someone else, you're not. In those cases, by scriptural authority, you are not allowed to eat or drink. And we need to be okay with that. Lest our good permissible thing become an evil, which breeds dissension in the church. Jesus was aware that if he refused to pay this temple tribute, even though it would have been lawful for him, it would not have been the best course of action because others might have gotten the wrong impression. Others might have viewed salvation differently. Others might have sinned by refusing to pay the tribute themselves. So in an act of loving sensitivity, Jesus offers to pay what he does not actually owe. Teaching Peter and us to be more concerned about our brother's well-being than our God-given right. And that is a thing, friends, that we oftentimes miss. In a spirit of Christian entitlement and arrogance. You know, several years ago, I met with a gentleman who was visiting different churches. He started asking me all sorts of questions about how we observe communion, the backgrounds we use during worship, what mode of baptism we perform. And then we got to the subject of alcohol. He wanted to know my personal stance on drinking and the church. Now, admittedly, on this issue, I hold a pretty conservative, even restrictive view on something that the Bible does not say is 100% completely prohibited. And so we had that discussion. And you know what this former pastor and professing believer said to me? He said, if I were in your church, I would crack a beer open right in your face to show you the grace of Christ. Because surely that would do it. <laughs> what kind of ridiculousness is that? Lurking under the cover of freedom and liberty and grace. Are you kidding? This is the kind of insistence on our rights that we need to avoid. 
as Jesus demonstrates here, as Paul has set forth on a number of other occasions. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you ought to. I mean, isn't that what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? That all things are lawful, Paul says in regard to preferentials. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify and build up. Where these things are concerned, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Friends, that's what this comes down to. It's love for my right or love for my neighbor. And we're supposed to choose our neighbor. Yeah. The tribute is for the son, not to be paid by him. The tribute is offered by the son so as not to offend others. And the tribute comes miraculously through the son to prove once again his divine sonship. Let's read through the text one more time together. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. He said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Peter said, yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, This is what you're going to do. Go to the sea and throw in a hook. And take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel in its mouth. Take that shekel worth four drachmas. And give it to the collectors for you and for me. In an act of great deference and humility... To prevent others from stumbling, Jesus offered to pay a tax that he did not actually owe. But his method of payment would leave them no doubt that he was truly the son of the living God. In order to procure those two drachmas the collectors were asking about, Jesus told Peter to go to the Sea of Galilee, catch one fish in particular, and find in its mouth a coin valued at one shekel, the amount that would cover the cost for both Jesus and Peter. Now, interestingly enough, we don't have the miracle itself recorded for us. The story ends with the command. Peter, go fish. And then we have only assumptions. The assumption that Peter did actually go fishing. The assumption that he did catch the one which held the coin. The assumption that Peter then handed that coin to the collectors. 
We don't have any of that in the narrative itself, but I think those things are reasonable enough for us to conclude. In fact, people throughout history have become so convinced that this miracle really did take place. They named the fish that he caught that day after him. To this day, there is a particular species found in the Sea of Galilee known as the Tristamala Simonis, which literally means the fish of Simon, Simon Peter. Jesus knew that Peter would catch that fish, demonstrating his omniscience. Jesus put a coin in its mouth, demonstrating his sovereignty. Jesus picked up the tab for Peter, demonstrating his provision. And Jesus left no doubt whatsoever in the minds of this apostle, in the mind of these collectors, in the mind of any believer reading this account today, Jesus left no doubt whatsoever that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who doesn't need to pay, but chooses to in a way that only the Son could. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the revelation of your word, the way it has been preserved for us, the truth it speaks to our minds and our hearts. And Lord, we see yet again proof of your son's deity. We also see, Lord, proof of his humility, that he would give of himself for the benefit of others, paying what he did not owe so as not to offend. And Lord, we are so very thankful that that is part of his character because we rely today on a payment he made for us that he did not owe. The Lord, we're thankful for this demonstration yet again of his person, of his nature of his position as your one and only son. May it bring us to a place of obedience. May it bring us to a place of greater worship and reverence for him. The one and only Jesus, our Messiah and our Christ. May he take all the honor and glory from this place, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 